provenance of Flame Tree Wines. Hello everybody, my name is Leah Clearwater and I'm the Brand and Sales Manager at Flame Tree Wines. Uh, hopefully you've tuned into our two previous podcasts where I had the pleasure of interviewing Ron Fraser at Atticus Vineyard who supplies us with some beautiful Chardonnay fruit and Mark Jolliffe at Jolliffe Vineyard in Willie Abrup who supplies us with some glorious Cabernet fruit. Today we're actually speaking with the people who turn this quality fruit into the delicious drops that our customers love, our winemakers. So I'd like to introduce you to Cliff Royal, who's the chief winemaker, who's been at Flame Tree for quite a number of years. 11 years. 11 years. And we have Julian Scott, who's our winery manager and also winemaker as well. So we are probably going to venture into a little bit of te technical talk for those wine nerds out there that like to hear about barrel ferments and wild ferments and malolactic fermentation and things like that. But we'll also dive into a few uncharted topics as well. So... Just to start off with, there is a bit of a worldwide movement out there around the word provenance, which is really um, being connected to and being in touch with where your food comes from, um, you know, supporting local, eating from local farms and, and producers and growers. And the same thing applies to wine. And that's really what this uh, video podcast series with Flame Tree Wines is about. It's the provenance of Flame Tree and really looking at the process of vine to wine. So food to plate, vine to wine. That's kind of what we're doing here. So I'm just going to have a bit of a casual chat. If there's any sounds in the background today, please forgive us. We're in a functioning winery. There's trucks driving around outside and forklifts and all kinds of things going on. So you're really getting a behind the scenes glimpse into Flame Tree Wines. So to kick us off, uh, guys, can you tell us your memory of the very first time you tasted wine and what was your impression of it? Yeah, I remember as a 15-year-old, um, my dad was part of a local wine club and he used to drink wines like Kaiserstuhl and Taylor's and Redmond and if it was a special occasion, he'd have a Henschke wine. And I remember uh, at this time, at around 15 years old, dad putting in front of me a little thimble full of uh, Henschke Hill of Grace and, um, and trying the wine and thinking, oh, that's interesting, but not really for my taste. I actually didn't really like it at all. Um, so for me, my first wine experience was more around uh, Crucian Riesling and uh, Fruity Lex here from Brown Brothers, which is where I think we probably all start uh, with our wine journey. And that was when I was around 18. So. Yeah. And yeah. Julian? Yeah, um, fairly similar, really. Uh, my, my father, um, he was a pharmacist, so he didn't have a big seller, really, of wine. Um, so my first real experience, or first taste of wine, I guess, was more um was cask wine like cliff said so uh, not high quality and didn't thrill me didn't think much about it apart from the fact that it was alcohol and i was probably under 18 i think at the time um unfortunately uh but yeah so i really for me the first time i really uh tried wine and actually considered it was probably horton's white burgundy and i was more probably 22 I think out to dinner with my girlfriend and bought that and sort of thought oh that's nice with Thai food and um yeah sort of started thinking about it but didn't really get into wine until I was 25 oh, right. really as such where um yeah I started to see wine down here ah. well that leads into the next question so uh what made you want to become a winemaker and how long have you been making wine uh so yeah I've been making wine since I've been in the industry since um, 1998, 
so a fair amount of time now. Um, yeah, and what made me want to become a winemaker? Um, that's an interesting one. I pretty much moved down here to go surfing, like a lot of people Sounds do. Sounds common. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to get better at surfing bigger waves and travel the world and didn't leave. Um, yeah, so that was basically it. And then, yeah, I was working at Lewin as a kitchen hand and saw the lab. I'm a chemist already. I was a chemist already from uni and um, saw the lab and thought, oh, that's interesting. Was starting to get into wine a little bit uh, at that point and thought about, I love Margaret River and surfing and then I thought, wow, there's opportunities here with wine and I found wine quite interesting. And my friend um, came back from, the, uh, from a vintage, which I didn't know what it was, um, and he said he just finished vintage or he's actually doing vintage and he couldn't cut it. He's actually a viticulturalist now, my friend from Stella Bella, Steve Martin. And he said, no, that was terrible, can't do that. And I said, what are you talking about? What's vintage? And, I, he's, and he said, I'll have some grapes, blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, I um, said, he says, you want a job? I said, okay. He gave me a number, Virginia Wilcox. I rang her up and that was that. Started the process and loved it. Um, pretty crazy yeah, it was very hard work and all that, um, but yeah, that's sort of what is, it was Kicked a great start. And, yeah. and how about you, Cliff? Yeah, my progression came via beer. So my okay. first job when I was at uni in the mid-80s, without going into too much detail about how old I am, <laughs> um, I started working with Phil Sexton when he, and Gary Gazzatti when they had Matilda Bay Brewing Company. So my first real job out of after McDonald's was at the Sail and Anchor, um, pouring beer to start with, and then... Got involved in the retail side of things, really loved the beer and food side. Kate Lamont was at uh, Sail and Anchor doing the food and then progressively got more and more interested in the wine side of things. Um, and then fast forward quite a few years later, I met Stuart and Janice when I was managing the Redback Brewery Bottle Shop over in Melbourne. And they said to me, look, your interest in wine could take you down this path. And Stuart said, look, I'm off to Voyager Estate uh, if you start pursuing this career, I'll have a job for you. And in 1997, I started as assistant winemaker at Voyager. Wow. So that's my history in the so wine beer, industry. Yeah. Lab. Yeah. <laughs> you never know what's going to get you into the wine industry. No. So we've already interviewed, as I mentioned earlier, two of our growers. Um, so flame trees in a scenario where we don't have our own vineyards, we don't grow our own fruit. Um, I'd like to ask you both, what do you think are the benefits of sourcing and buying your own fruit from across the region as opposed to growing your own grapes? Because a lot of customers out there assume if you have a wine brand, then you have vineyards. Yeah. You know, yeah. but there's so many different models. There you know, are, some people are. grow grapes yeah. and get the wine made by contract. Yeah. Some people, <laughs> you know, there's lots of different scenarios. So what's the benefit of, of the scenario at Flame Tree? I think the obvious one is that Margaret River is a big area and that if you can isolate regions that produce different varieties better than others, it makes sense to take them from those regions. And uh, certain varieties are definitely more suited. And in general terms, we talk about the reds to the north and the whites to the south. That's very general. And we know it's 100 kilometres long by 27, 30 kilometres wide. So uh, we, uh, we think that taking different parcels of fruit, you can then blend them together to make more complex and more interesting wines. And also viticulture is obviously about risk. And sometimes you don't want all your eggs in one basket as well. So when you own your own vineyards, you're at the mercy of the elements. And sometimes that can be disastrous and sometimes it can be wonderful. And this also just assures us a little bit of more, more consistency around product from different 
regions of Margaret River. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on that, Julian? Um, yeah, I agree with what Cliff said. And yeah, I think that um, if you have the, I've been, I've worked for companies, as Cliff has, that are just single vineyard uh, producers, and that has its limitations. And especially in some years, there might be a certain year where that vineyard was affected by whatever it might be, some natural weather event, or the season was not favorable for another reason, um, and then it's really hard. So where you have all your wine is a bit affected, and you might have to look at other vineyards to bolster it, or, you know, so that's a big factor. So I think um, there's that, it gives us consistency, I believe. Um, yeah, and like Cliff said, you really can showcase the whole um, Margaret River region and pick the eyes out of it into what we want to make. Sorry, there's a fly there. <laughs> Get away, fly. <laughs> okay, so um, the other two podcast videos we did, one was featuring Chardonnay and one was featuring Cabernet. Most people who have travelled to Margaret River or um, love Margaret River wine will know that Chardonnay and Cabernet are our hero varieties or some people call them our flag flagship varieties. So I'd, you'd be pretty guaranteed the majority of cellar doors that you go to, you're going to find at least one Chardonnay and one Cabernet, if not a Cabernet Merlot. Yeah. Uh, here at Flame Tree, we have three of each, and I'm talking about straight varietals here, not um, blends. We have them here on the barrel. So we have um, an Embers Chardonnay, a Flame Tree Chardonnay, and an SRS Chardonnay, yeah. and similarly with the Cabernets. So, Cliff, why do we make three of each? Like, what's the rationale behind that? And yeah, well, exactly what you said. I mean, they're the strengths of the region. Um, you know, make no mistake, um, Chardonnay is the greatest white grape variety in the world, and what better place to showcase it maybe outside of Burgundy than Margaret River? So uh, we think that um, playing to the strengths of the region make perfect sense. So the three Chardonnays, uh, one is the more entry-level embers, which is softer, richer, juicier, not as oak-influenced, um, not as wild, um, ferment-wise, and, and just a bit more conventional and easy drinking with or without food. And then you go into the Flame Tree range where it's a mix of vineyards, predominantly from the south, uh, with that sort of telltale Flame Tree structure and that lovely grapefruit pith and 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 citrus but um you know it's, a, it's still got a margaret river thumbprint to it it's still got that lovely margaret river fruit and then the single vineyard or the uh, srs wine is uh, a single vineyard expression of our best wine in more of a burgundian technique type style so it's very flinty it's very minerally um, it's very funky um, it's got some nice sulfides and lots of layers and textures and is the pinnacle of what we can do in a given vintage Awesome. What about the Cabernets? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think, it, again, similar to the Chardonnay, uh, what our approach was was to try and make the best value Cabernet with the embers. Um, so try fruit forward as easy drinking as Cabernet can be, which is not that <laughs> easy because uh, Cabernet has a lot of structure. But we've been working at that for 10 years now and I think we're getting there using um, wild fermentation, for the reds really helps to soften their tannins and make them more complex, but more drinkable. Yeah, uh, and as you move up the scale, we introduce more oak, more new French oak and higher quality parcels of fruit and more tannin. Um, yeah, all the way, so the, the mid-level Cabernet, we got a Cab Merlot, but the mid-level Cabernet uh, has mainly Willy Abrupt focus to the fruit and probably around 30% new French oak, so a balanced amount of oak that we, we find um, and it's very juicy and a bit more structured and more food orientated than the embers 
And then we go to the SRS, which is the pinnacle again for our reds. And that's the best single vineyard uh, Cabernet we have for the season. Willie Abrup again, um, and gets pampered in open fermenter um, and lots of skin contact, uh, lots of real focus on tannin extraction, pressed to two barrels uh, to, uh, at the end of fermentation, and then 50% new French oaks, so quite a lot. And it's all about that um, beautiful structure and line, and that wine will not be, for the punter, it will not be so approachable, but for the wine lover, it's something really interesting and it'll age really well and great with food. So, yeah, that's sort of the reason we have the three tiers. Mm, it's an interesting point you're talking there about customer preference. I mean, even just being in the cellar door, you can line up those three Chardonnays or those three Cabernets in front of a group, you know, a tour group might come in. And it's quite polarising, you know. Some people will just clearly go for the embers because it's approachable, it's ready, it's jumping out of the glass. And then you see other other people respond really well to the classic yeah. Margaret River styles of the flame tree. Yeah. And then yet others really like that point of difference that the SRS range brings. I think that more savoury, more complex, more layered sort of wines that are Ones that you, you're not just sitting there quaffing, they're probably ones where you'd sit there and contemplate life, you know, yeah, they're yeah. a bit deeper, like they a deeper are, person um, if you were personifying wine. Yeah, and we, we often say that at that SRS level, we want to make the, the person drinking them think about them a little bit yeah. more. They really need to be decanted, a nice big glass, and, and they do definitely go better with modern food trends. So that's, that's sort of a necessity, whereas an Embers wine that has both those wines go into only older oak, um, so there's no new oak influence on them. We want them to be a bit looser-knit and more easily drinkable. Hmm. So getting back to the whole vine-to-wine, the provenance idea, I spoke to Ron and Mark out in the vineyard the other day and asked them about the interactions that they have with you. So I'd like to put that, you know, the flip side of that is because you don't own the vineyards, you are having to, to form and manage a relationship with your growers. Yeah. How important is it that you go out there and visit them and work with them and communicate throughout probably mostly the growing season? Like, how does that work? Because most people wouldn't understand. What, what's the actual yeah. process? How do you well, get the best out of that situation? We obviously situation? have um, long-term relationships with a lot of these growers and we're, we're very upfront with what we need from the fruit um, and we have a long-standing relationship with them. They understand what we're after and most of the time um, they deliver that. Um, but certainly along the road, we, we have to be there often to can make sure the work's being done and um, sometimes talk about things if they haven't um, or at the level. And as we know in agriculture, it's, it, it changes all the time. So we have to have um, some conversations sometimes if the weather's gone awry and we need some more shoot thinning done or if the crop looks heavy and it needs to be reduced or if we need... Um, a bit of hedging done or we're a bit concerned about water or, or lack of or bird pressure, those sorts of things. But generally, they understand exactly what we're looking for and, and we sort of pay for that fruit accordingly. Um, and it's the longer I think your relationship goes for, the less you need to talk about it. Um, once you're on the same page, generally, it's not, it's not a big problem and, and um, we don't have too many issues. And we both get out early in the season when we're sort of in that spring, October uh, September, October time. And then as we get closer to vintage, Julian obviously gets brought back into the winery and it's a bit more difficult for him to get out um, during harvest. So um, that's generally something I do on my own. Yeah, but you, you go out into the vineyard as well until you're pretty much chained to the winery yeah, once so the fruit start comes when in. When we start getting two intakes a day and 
a, a backlog of wines in here. It's a little bit hard. Occasionally I'll get an opportunity to nip off uh, before work in the dark, which is not great. With your head torch, you can't really tell what's going on, but you're just going to get a good idea. Um, or after work, which is dark as well, uh, really. But, um, yeah, so early days, like we said, we go out together and it's really good to see the vineyards every week or two and see them changing. Um, but, yeah, um, pretty important to do that because every year is different and it's sort of the, some growers have a lot of area they have to manage and we're just a small part of it. Um, they know what we want, but it's always good to visit with them and, and continually talk about it. But um, like Cliff said, being involved with them for now some 10 years, some of them, um, they know pretty much what we want, what we need and, you know, what our style of wine we need to get out of that fruit. And that's the biggest, with the new guys, that's a bit, you know, you always got to work very uh, hard together on that and taste wines here with them, taste previous vintages, wine with them. Um, and then sort of get an understanding of what we want to do with it. And like, uh, for example, last year we got some Chardonnay off uh, a northern vineyard um, and it was pretty lean and, but it was grown in a way to be picked riper than we pick. So we discussed that and they said, yeah, look, we can make sure that we don't water it as much. We go more unirrigated and manage it in a way where it will ripen earlier where you want it to be. Um, so yeah, there's a way you can manage vines to, to get them to be to perform where you want them to. to Just got to navigate it with with the grower. Yeah, and they, they, everyone's really yeah, so it's got to have a good relationship and discuss it. But um, yeah, so unfortunately at harvest time I don't get an opportunity. It's more looking at samples, and um, yeah, just convey that to Cliff and say, hey, the sample's looking ready, pretty much. What do you think? And he'll go out there and probably, you know probably ready or not. Um, that's what it's all about. Goes so it's back, a lot of teamwork. Yeah, it is, and it goes back to the age old. Um, you know, it's got to be good communication and it's yeah. got to be um, respectful and two-way. Did you know that Flame Tree Wines has an incredible wine club offer called The Family Tree? Sign up to receive two cartons per year from a selection of delicious packs and receive 20% of all wine purchases online and in Celador. Members also receive an exclusive invitation to a free annual event with the opportunity to taste pre-release wines and barrel samples. On top of all this, shipping is free for any purchases of a dozen or more. Sign up via the website and begin your beautiful journey with Flame Tree Wines today. Funny, you, you mentioned, it's quite poignant, you mentioned about going out early in the morning during vintage or late at night a lot of people have romantic notions about the wine industry and what's involved and, you know, they like to get their photos taken out in front of the vines or they love coming and seeing the winery. We have a lot of people, can I go and have a look at the winery? So there's, um, there's a lot of people that think it's just all, you know, out picking grapes and stomping on them and, you know, what are the, what are the not so romantic parts about being a winemaker and working within a winery or during vintage I'm sure there's lots, and I'm not trying to de-romanticise it, but no, no. people like to hear, what's it really like? Oh, look, it can be, it can be quite stressful. Um, I think that's uh, you know, something that people would appreciate because you only get one chance to harvest grapes well and you can't say, oh, look, I got that wrong. Stick uh, them back on the vines. Yeah, <laughs> give me your glue, I'll just put that back on and give it <laughs> yeah. another week or two. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you can't then say, oh, I missed that and it's a bit uh, overripe. Um, so... Yeah, you have to you have to get get it right, and I think over time you get a bit more trust in your decision making around the style of wines you're looking for. Um, that can that can have its um, 
you know, present its problems. But overall, the wine industry is pretty, pretty fun place to work, and uh, that's why we're in it. You're yeah. so positive. <laughs> what about in the in the winery? Have you ever had a big disaster or anything happen during vintage that? Yeah, um, haven't. Uh, I don't want to say. It's so, so many <laughs> you things. Don't say. <laughs> so many things could happen. Yeah. Uh, in a winery, which could be bad. Um, you know, it's not a safe place. So romantically, yeah, growing grapes and making wine is is awesome. It's an artistic process and natural. Um, however, it's also very industrial. So we have lots of equipment that's very dangerous, and you can get hurt, and you're very tired. You're working very long hours, and you might not think clearly sometimes. So, yeah, we're on the safety officer here too. So it's all about trying to be safe, working practices. And um, I guess that's a, probably, yeah, the industrial side of it might be the, the less enjoyable side. You just have to be safe around all this equipment. Um, saying that barrels as well, forklifting is dangerous. You can drop barrels. That happens everywhere. Uh, we have procedures to make that as safe as possible. Um, but, yeah, it's regarding... Like vintage, like Chris said, is, can be stressful and that's not an enjoyable aspect of it in that it all has to come in at once, depends on the year. We have some years where, because we get fruit from everywhere, some years where north ripens later than south, so they ripen at the same time. We've had that. That's just a... So you've got trucks pulling up with fruit and well, we, no way to, to... we can only book it in. Yeah. We've only got one. So probably here the biggest stressful factor is we have one press that's 10 tonne equivalent um, and there we have 300 tonne or more to put through that one press and we do a lot of Chardonnay and if it's already in two weeks, it's a bit of a uh, management, a logistical management issue. Uh, and then the other, probably the side, I, I reckon that um, the least enjoyable side of a winery is the back end. How do you mean? The effluent <laughs> side. Oh, <laughs> literally that's, the back that's end. That's <laughs> what we have to manage as well. So that's probably the side Wastage that no management. winemaker would want to yeah, uh, deal okay. with. But, you know, you have to make sure you're uh, sustainable and that it's um, completely uh, treated in, a, in the best way possible without an environmental impact. And so you have to maintain it, your system. So every week I go and check it out and like right now there's a few issues I've got to get amongst it, which is not great. So it's a lot of like people wine. probably wouldn't even think <laughs> about that, <laughs> all the wastage issues that you've got to deal with. Yeah. So we've talked about the non-romantic parts of being a winemaker and yeah. What about what are the things that you still, after so many years of being in the industry, that just put a big smile on your face and you think, this is why I'm in this industry? It's a unique industry because we get given a different hand every year. That's the part I really was drawn to. I didn't really see myself doing the same thing every day in an office building in St George's Terrace and that was sort of where I was headed. So I really like the fact you get your hands dirty, uh, but it also combines a whole heap of um, different skills around microbiology, metabolic biochemistry and um, understanding all the microbe side of things. Um, I find it really interesting and really challenging at the same time. Uh, and then the good winemakers, I believe, and I quite often talk to good producers that I look to and look up to, uh, they make good wines regardless of the conditions. And so I think that ability of winemakers to be able to say, okay, this year I've been given these parameters and so I need to go in this direction rather than read from a recipe sets them apart from most of their peers. Yeah, so you have mm. to be um, responsive to, you know, if we're dealing with Mother Nature. That's right. You can have mm. cracker vintages where you almost the wine makes itself. Mm. You know, it comes in and it's clean and it goes through ferment really nicely and everything yeah. just flows. But yeah. then there's other vintages where you've had a wet 
cold season and you've got to deal with fruit with problems. That's right. That's so right. I suppose yeah. even that's a positive point when you can overcome that or navigate that's your right. way around it as a winemaker and say, okay, this is our lot. That's right. What are we going to do with it? Yeah, and even and it's easy to make good wine in a good vintage and everyone pretty well does. And if you don't, then you're in the wrong industry. But <laughs> if you make good wine in a lesser or lesser perceived vintage, then you get reward for that and people recognise it. I think that's more rewarding than anything and that certainly puts a smile on my face when you, we've sort of been through the adversity and still come out the other end with a really good result. What about you, Julian? What makes you feel um, happy being in the wine industry? Yeah, probably... Um, yeah, it's when wines turn out really good. Yeah. It really, that's the best part when I can, you know, you try something and it's just worked out really well because you never really know how it's going to end up. Um, and also when um, people really appreciate the wines that are made. Mm. I think that's the best part. When like, you, you see know, customers enjoying the yeah, wine. Yeah, the door. I work in there occasionally. But, um, yeah, when people really, really love the wines and enjoy them, then it's like a reward for all the hard work you've done, really. But, yeah, um, it's just a great – I just love the uh, – just the enjoying the products that you are involved with, really, products of your hard work. So That's awesome. Um, one of the things I'm proud about working for Flame Tree Wines is, even though it's a young winery relative to the 50-year-old region that we exist within, we've achieved quite a significant degree of recognition right from the get-go um, and acclaim, particularly for our Chardonnays and Cabernets. Um, Cliff, because you've been here the longest, what, what are some of the highlights in terms of, you know, awards or scores or things like that that, yeah. that stand well, out for you? Well, obviously I was first drawn, one of the reasons I actually came here was on the back of the Jimmy Watson Trophy for the 2007 Cap Merlot that was awarded in 2008. So that was uh, something that I thought, well, it's an incredible achievement to be the first ever red wine. And it probably in those early days we were better known as a red producer um, and then for over a period of time probably progressed um, more with our, with our Chardonnays. And it was certainly a big event when the 14 SRS Chardonnay was given 98 points from James Suckley and put in his top 10 wines um, of the year. And we were one of two Australian wines in his top 100. So wow. that really put us on the map in the international stage. Um, and then the 2016 SRS Chardonnay was awarded eight trophies in national wine shows. Um, and again, that put us on the map in the domestic market. So, and then as a result of that, we've had great show success for those wines over the next few vintages. And, um, you know, where that wine's on pretty tight allocation has just recently got a 98 point from Hugh and Hook for the 19 SRS Chardonnay. So uh, I think that wine's pretty well known And a gold medal at the... Yeah, and, and, and gets, uh, is in the, yeah, it was in the trophy taste off at Perth show. And um, so I think we've, we're in a nice groove there with what I would call that sort of more leaner, more modern style Australian Chardonnay that seems to be resonating with the gatekeepers. Mm. We keep mentioning SRS yeah. um, as our top range. That stands for sub-regional series. That's right. So yeah. um, that, could, that can be a bit of a controversial topic within the region. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously we're sort of hearkening back to the original proposition from Dr John Gladstone's where he identified some key areas within the region. There's nothing wrong with, with anecdotally discussing that and, and selecting areas. But can you explain what that SRS um, tier within our portfolio is all about? Yeah, sure. So obviously, like you said, it's Gladstone's uh, proposed regions, uh, sub-regions going back into the 80s. And it was more for me to identify that because it's such a big region, we just wanted to let people know where we get our fruit from. 
Um, so it was more about just identifying. Sort of storytelling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's well, right. It was, it was yeah. part of the story. Um, and and it, you can't just say, oh, we got our fruit from the north or fruit North-east, from the south yeah. when it's such a big region. And yeah. so for us, it's, the, it's, a, it's a tool that we can use to, to identify where we get our Chardonnay and Cabernet from and our single vineyard wines. And so that sub-regional series sort of came from there. And I'd always really liked the Wallcliff area um, which was when I was at Voyager and, and Xanadu and Lewin. And I really like the grapefruit that you get from the Jinjing clone. And I just think that it really leans itself to that finer, tighter style Chardonnay. And so, um, yeah, we, we just like to identify that and, and then probably Caradale for Sauvignon Blanc and then obviously Cabernet for Willy Abrupt, uh, Willy Abrupt Cabernet. So it just seems to go hand in hand, that really strong Cassis and Mocha black currant and um, they're, they're, they're the three regions that I think do those varieties better than anywhere mm. else. And we also have the Sav Blanc yeah, from that's right. Caradale. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Syrah. That's right. So, yeah, we, and the Syrah is a bit of an interesting one because people might think you go further north for Shiraz, and you certainly can. You make a bigger style of wine, but we like the more elegant, almost Pinot-style Syrah uh, where we make it more like a Pinot, and that also comes from... Uh, Ron Fraser's Atticus Vineyard. So quite far south. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's a very perfumed, very elegant. We obviously use a lot of whole berry and some bunches and some dried stalks. And it gives a really sort of ethereal, like I say, almost Pinot style of wine that's got that beautiful pepper and spice and blood plum and licorice and star anise. And uh, we, I think that, um, and I know Julian agrees, that um, we those sort of wines are better suited to Margaret River than those bigger, more extracted styles that can sometimes have that sort of bit of winter green tannin mm. to them. I love hearing winemakers use all those descriptors. Mm. <laughs> it's just, and it just rolls off your tongue. Uh, you mentioned before the, the SRS Chardonnay is, is probably a little bit um, of a diversion from the, the classic Margaret River style, if you like. Not that we can categorise that. There's so many different styles of Chardonnay across Margaret River, but it is... Um, a variety that we're known for. Why is the SRS different? You, you sort of mentioned funky. I, I think it's quite savoury. So what's happening with the winemaking? I'll, I'll throw this one at you, Julian. What's happening with the winemaking in the SRS that sets it apart stylistically? Yeah, okay. So um, this stems back to a long time ago, 2012, I reckon. I'd been here, I started in 2010, been here a couple of years. And we were making, I came from Hamlin Bay, um, Stella Bella, and at that point, 2000, we were making quite rich Chardonnays generally around the traps. Lewin had influenced everyone. My old boss was from Lewin, so yeah, we were doing yeasted Chardonnay, picking at 13 OMA and ending up at 14.5% alcohol, getting trophies for that stuff, and it was rich and yummy wine, you know, like, but um, by no means interesting really in the true, in what we're doing now. So anyway, in 2012, Cliff brought in a few of his bottles of, from his cellar, and he's got a lot of in his cellar. Oh, <laughs> I haven't seen this cellar yeah, yet. Yeah, he's got a few bottles in <laughs> He hasn't got as much anymore. He's uh, <laughs> drank a few of them, I reckon. But anyway, he brought in a couple of really good uh, burgundies that, that he really liked, um, and that was, it must have been a 2000, and I can't remember the year, if it was 2014, oh, it was 2012, 2010 Rouleau. Yeah, so it was a Rouleau and a couple of other ones. But the Rouleaux with a really distinctive uh, character, like super complex. And I saw it and was like, oh, my goodness, what is this? 
I could, didn't understand it at all. And I was like, I don't know, what is that? Um, <laughs> so complex. It's like out there. And so, so fighty and different. And I was like, wow, I had never seen anything like it. Um, Did you like it? No. Okay. And EP Cliff said, you gotta, we're going to make this. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, we, we want to we make something like this. I was like, oh, yeah. And at that same time, uh, in 2011, so that same year, I think, uh, the hate spree from Bass 2010 was a bit like that. It was really complex. Got the trophy at Margs. We're looking at that going, whoa. That's different. Um, the Bass Felix. Yeah, yeah, and Virginia's pretty open, so she, yeah. she explained to me how she did that. And um, so we started playing around with it, uh, that style. Yeah. And then so 2014 was the first year we got punchins. We're looking at the Yabby Lake wines, and punchins work well for them, and, and they're like, um, you can't, they're there, those large format. 500 litres? Yeah, 500 litre punchins. We started playing with them, and you get a much more um, – reductive ferment and you get a beautiful savouriness to your wine and the new oak is diluted because it's a much lower surface area so um, yeah the wine stays fresher so using that process in punchins we found we could make a wine in that style a little bit and then by picking at a certain time and targeting certain vineyards we get a real beautiful complexity and salinity and savouriness to the wines and fine-tuning which oak fits it um so through yeah, the past six years, we've been sort of working that out. And I'm not saying we have a recipe at all, <laughs> but we've worked out a way where we can capture what we see in that wine and sort of make that style yeah. naturally. I'm not forcing it really, but sometimes we might do certain things to push it in a certain direction, but it's all wild fermented, whole bunch pressed. Um, there's nothing, we don't add anything to it. It's all natural combination of oak and fruit. And the rationale behind that is that we believe that Margaret River has this incredible fruit power. And so we're trying to work against the fruit power almost to make something that's a little more medium bodied, but more textured and layered and a bit more international in style. I mean, there's plenty of people making that really strongly flavoured Margaret River style Chardonnay. Which people but, do love. Which yeah. people do love. I and, love it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, it goes back to when I started at Voyager, people said to me, so you're going to make Lewin Estate Chardonnay? And I said that I thought that was a really strange question. Isn't because, Lewin making Lewin? Well, well that's yeah. right. And we shared a border with them, so everyone sort of figured we'd go down that path. Yeah. But we actually went with an earlier picked, leaner, finer, tighter, um, you know, more textured, layered sort of sort of wine. And and we've progressed that even further here with a bit of creative license around making the wine more savoury and and uh, using the punchins. And I think it's a really good you know, a really good foil to a lot of the styles that are being made here. And certainly now people are looking at those wines picked at 11 and a half, 13% alcohol. Um, they're a bit more balanced. Um, they don't, people never fell out of love with Chardonnay. They fell out of love with the sort of Chardonnays that were being made. They were heavily mellowed. They were heavily oaked. Um, they were really, really charry and quite high in alcohol. And this wine style, I think, is back where people would like to see Chardonnay and more comfortable with it. And Finally, people are sort of heading off Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc back to Chardonnay. Amen. I love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is the beauty of this region, I think, yeah. um, when we're talking about Chardonnay and Cabernet yeah. and a whole plethora of other varieties that we're now um, showcasing. You know, we're going off into alternate varietals. There's a lot of young guns and, and even some of the bigger wineries are, are trying out new varieties. But I think these are always going to be our staples because of the soil and the climate that we have here it's just a perfect alignment and That's the right. beauty of it is that the fruit that comes from across the region 
and the the styles that you can make out of it is just such a broad range. And Absolutely. so if you are a Chardonnay lover or a Cabernet lover, you're, you're bound to find a number of wines within the region that you like. Um, so some people would like the Embers, some people would like the Flame Tree, some people like the SRS. So um, they are, you know, the, the queen and king of grape varieties. So to finish off, a bit of unashamed promotion. We all work at Flame Tree. <laughs> um, it's been a bit of a tough time initially with the COVID situation, uh, with uh, the, the cellar door being closed, but we're seeing unprecedented visitation at the moment. Um, a lot of people, well, we're, we're all stuck in the state, which yep. is a good thing. We're all safe uh, and people are coming down from Perth and up from the south. As the winemakers, this is your opportunity. Why should people come to Flame Tree? I mean, not just talking about these these particular wines, but yeah. what have we got on offer here in your opinion? Well, I think it's a beautiful building for a start. Uh, it's a lovely lawned area. Um, you can grab some forage out of the fridge and <laughs> grab yourself a glass of wine, go and sit on sit out in the sun and it's the perfect time of the year for it. So the staff are really friendly and helpful and whether you're a novice or whether you're an expert, um, I think you'll find uh, you know, a good experience here. And we've also got giant Jenga. Yes. <laughs> And we have a wine winemaker that sometimes jumps behind the counter if it's busy, which is you won't see that very often. No, occasionally, <laughs> if we're sitting up there, if we're tasting wines and it gets busy, we'll jump behind. Yeah. Yeah, I reckon the um, good range of wines, uh, like I said, because we source from everywhere, uh, got really good consistency. And if yeah, the reason to come, I believe, is you can try the whole range if you want, um, or focus in on your style. We also have a family tree uh, club member club and for that we make specific wines which are only available here so i think it's worth worth coming to yeah well thanks for your time everyone today thanks cliff thanks julian and thanks to jab agency who have filmed these video podcasts for us and done a great job kayo and alex the provenance of flame tree wines <laughs>